Welcome to Getting to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I'm chatting with a speaker, educator, entrepreneur, community organizer, and the co-founder of Seawall Development. Please welcome Tebow Madigan. Welcome to the podcast. Rob, it's great to be here. Thank you for making time. Thank you for including me in this awesome platform you've created. Thank you so much. Um, it's, and it's, it's a pleasure to have you on here. Um, yeah. So, so where do we start? Where do we start? Um, as if we weren't talking for like 30 minutes before this, uh, <laughs> uh I want to, I want to start off with, as I, I try to do, um, I'm going to give that surface level. Like these are the things this person does. You give me the vital stats. What, what's the, what's the vital stats about Tebow Vatican? Yeah. Thanks. So born and raised in Baltimore city. And from a very young age, I had these two burning questions start to grow in my heart and they were, why are we so divided as human beings? And what creative ways can we bridge those divides? And, you know, the older I got growing up in Baltimore and then eventually going off to college, the more those questions became apparent and the more I realized how far I was from finding an answer to solu- a solution to either one of them. And so I was, I guess, about 22 years old and I had the opportunity right after college to help start an international nonprofit called Peace Players. And the idea is that we would go to war-torn countries and we would use basketball to bridge divides, develop leaders, and help change perceptions. So spent kind of six incredible years, and we'll probably hit that a little bit later in this interview, helping sure. to bring that, that concept to life. Ended up unexpectedly back in Baltimore, right? The city that I love and had the opportunity to start a company called Seawall, uh, which I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk a lot about too, which is really around how can you can reimagine the real estate industry. Yeah. And so it's been, uh, it's been awesome. I've been back for about 15 years, have an amazing wife from Brazil and two beautiful kids who are 10 and 12 years old and just, uh, feel so inspired every day and feel like every, you know, everything that I do is in direct alignment with kind of my purpose and in a quest to continue to answer those questions that I haven't found the solution or answer to of why are we so divided and what creative ways can we bridge those divides? It's great. It's great to, to kind of be working towards a purpose or what have you. It's that, uh, it's that reason you get up. It's that reason you do what you're doing. You have a, you have a, a, a beacon that you're going towards or what have you. And as it moves, you're like, I found like, it was something I mentioned earlier is it's something that, um, uh, George Frazier, uh, mentioned, he's talking about like obstacles, right. Being vitamins. He's like, you eat those every day. And it, it, it's been sticking with me. I kind of like it. And I think when you see, you have like a purpose, a goal that you're driving towards. And when these little obstacles get in your way, you're like, okay, I can just juke this one. I can jump over this one. I can eat this one. And it keeps you, it keeps you on point. So yeah, well, we, 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 yeah. we, we talk, I mean, it, w- when you have that, it's like your North star, right? Like every day we're faced with like hundreds of decisions, tiny ones and big ones. And when we're hit, when we're trying to answer those, make those decisions on the fly and, 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 it, and it isn't driven by any kind of like global North star or purpose, then we'll struggle to answer those. But when we have that North star, whether it's a decision we make as a parent, as a husband, as a friend, as a colleague, as a, as a, as a business partner. And yeah. we're, we're in alignment with that. It just makes it all flow so much easier. And we're not like kind of internally gluing pieces together. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it, 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 it's, uh, it's, it's really helpful. Absolutely. So I read that one of the goals through Seawall is to work, you know, against the division and communities uh, by, through, through real estate, right? Now tell me about 
social entrepreneurship in real estate amidst thoughts of, let's say, gentrification. Whenever anyone has a conversation around like real estate, especially here, um, and, and I asked this of someone actually, it's like, you asked a developer about gentrification? I was like, why wouldn't I? I was like, I have no class or tact, <laughs> but I do, but I, I still, you, you still, it's a valid question, I think. So in it, how, how, how does that work with social entrepreneurship? Because people talk about it, and then not everyone understands what it might be. So could you speak on that a bit? Yeah. So my experience with real estate is that when I came back from South Africa and the Middle East and all these countries that were really divided, sure. right, where we were, were growing this Peace Players program, I, I ended up somewhat unexpectedly on the corner of Pennsylvania and North Avenue back in 2006. Mm-hmm. For your listeners who aren't from Baltimore, although I feel like a lot of them are, uh, that's the intersection that nine years later in 2015 would be the epicenter of the Freddie Gray uprising. Right? And this is a neighborhood, admittedly, that I really hadn't spent much time in growing up. And to a certain extent that I had been made to believe that I wouldn't be welcome in or that I wouldn't be safe in. Um, and that narrative of listening to what others tell you you should feel and think didn't resonate with me anymore. And so I, I had this incredible kind of walk through that community that day. And I had two realizations. One of them was that our country, in particular our city of Baltimore, are more divided than all these so-called war-torn countries where I just spend so much time and energy. We have an inability here to have open and honest conversations about our similarities and our differences with people who don't look and feel like us. And I had always kind of seen that as a ticking time bomb and walking through the community that day became so much more apparent. Right? Mm -hmm. This was less than three miles from where I grew up and I'd never really been there. The second realization that I had was that the real estate industry, the control and ownership of land is the most powerful connected industry on the planet. Mm. But historically, it's done more to divide us and keep us apart than actually bring us together. And that bothered me, right? Yeah. Like my family had been in real estate growing up. I had missed all of this for really my entire life. And here it was glaring in my face what that divide actually was. And so that's where the idea of Seawall was born, right? And people talk about social entrepreneurship. Um, but the, the idea from the experience that I had on Pennsylvania North Avenue that day was how do we reimagine this industry where buildings are actually used to empower communities, unite cities and help to launch really powerful ideas. And again, that becomes the North Star, right? And so you, any project that we ended up taking on, whether it was creating discount apartments for teachers or collaborative office space for nonprofits or creative use of old warehouses for charter schools or Lexington market, which we're working on today. Um, and all of these projects that we've worked on for, for, for so long. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was really about kind of reimagining that industry. And when you talk about social entrepreneurship, I think that's what this like next generation is starving to do. Take things the way the world is understood to be one way and completely flip them upside down where we're leading with our purpose over our profit. Yeah. And so, you know, I get to mentor all kinds of young people and get calls every week from folks who want to get in real estate. And there's a fundamental shift in the attitude and the, the real desires of this next generation of future kind of folks in the real estate industry, but even just entrepreneurs in general, which is that purpose over profit. Mm-hmm. They are more interested in feeling great and in alignment with their purpose as they go to bed every night, um, feeling that they're moving the needle and making our cities better places, making our industries better and more relatable to the reality of the world that we're in today. And that's inspiring to see. Um, and you know, we, to, to see that in a really complicated industry like real estate is, is, is really amazing. 
the gentrification conversation is one that you should ask any developer, right? Um, and it's, it's, I really don't like that word. Um, I think the word is displacement that we need to be focused on. You know, we have a, there's anywhere between 20 and 40,000 vacant homes in our city, mm-hmm. right? That are crippling the communities that they're in. Yes. Um, and that is unacceptable. We have to find creative ways to invest in those communities and bring back the vacant properties or find other creative solutions to them. And, and it has to happen. Right. And yeah. the more investment you make in a neighborhood, the more desirable it's going to be to live in. That is a fact. Right. And we have a responsibility to not leave any neighborhood, um, unloved, um, unsupported, um, uh, uninvested in. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we've done a lot of work in the neighborhood of Remington, but we've done stuff in East Baltimore and West Baltimore as well. And, Everybody wants that forward progress. Everybody wants the streets to be more walkable, to be safer, to not be walking past vacants, to not have liquor stores on the, on, on every corner. And I think that, uh, I think that gentrification word really kind of confuses it because it makes us feel mm-hmm. like we shouldn't be investing in communities, right? Yeah. Um, the displacement word is really important. We have to find as developers and as communities, ways to make those meaningful investments without ever feel without ever having the people who are the legacy residents of a given community ever feeling like they're not welcome and that they will somehow be displaced. Mm-hmm. And that's the beautiful balancing act that, uh, that, that needs to take place. Um, and, and it's a, it's, it's always a, a tricky conversation, but I think what we can, remove the gentrification word mm-hmm. uh, and really focus on not displacing people within these communities, then I think that that's where we begin to move the needle. Yeah. And, and thank you. Thank you for, for making that distinction and really adding to it. I, and, I, and, and in many ways, that's kind of a bit of a softball because I had a vibe of where you were going with it. But I think people throw it around and they, they just don't, don't get it. And I moved into a, a neighborhood that you know, it's like, okay, this is an area that it has attention. This is an area, you know, that that's going to be worked on and, and so on. And it's like, let's move in. We, you know, let's move back to my childhood neighborhood. Right. And really invest in, in the city. And, you know, it has gotten to a point where that conversation on displacement has come up, you know, when I've talked to different people into the development side of things here, when it comes to bringing new you know, new, new things here, whether it be a market, whether it be retail, so on. And it's kind of like the, the backside of it. We've moved so many people out. We've displaced so many people. So how can we bring them back in to have this flourishing, thriving community? And, you know, that's really the conversation as you, you were describing. So, so back, back to peace players. Um, and I, I want to ask about any lessons that you may have learned living abroad that you apply to your, your, your work today. I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned in growing the Peace Players program is that the ideas that we work on aren't ours, right? Um, and as entrepreneurs, we tend to let our egos get in the way. And we're so focused on claiming ownership of an idea as it's beginning to grow that we begin to stunt its growth, right? When we don't always realize that Ideas have always existed. They've always been out there sitting on the tip of the universe's tongue, just being waiting for the right moment to come to life. 
And while we can be really helpful in bringing the idea to life, it really isn't ours. And we have no right to kind of claim it as only ours. So when, you know, when we, when we went to South Africa for the first time, right after the fall of apartheid, we were really aware that when we were showing up into these communities uh, and into this country, which was completely foreign to us, mm-hmm. that we weren't showing up and saying that we've got this idea that's going to change centuries of racism and segregation and hatred and hatred and violence and, and, and all of those things that go along with that, that we were showing up as um, with, with the ability to really listen deeply and say that, there's this idea that sports could actually bridge divides, right? We've seen it work, but in order for this to happen within the country of South Africa, within the communities that we were working, um, what do our local coaches and parents and community members and, and city leaders, what do they want the program to look like so that it works best for them? And so our job in that role of like helping to bring the idea to life was to be really quietly behind the scenes. Yeah. With the general idea and understanding that sports could unite, but never coming in and saying that we had all the answers and solutions and that the idea was ours. Right. And the more open we were in the sharing of the ownership and authorship of the idea, the more legs the idea got, the more people really understood it to be their own. Yeah. Um, the more kids it touched, the more coaches wanted to participate in its success because it belonged to them. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was a powerful lesson because we could have gone in the other way around and said, Hey, we've got this idea that's going to change your country for the better. And that would have been really poorly received. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, in, to a certain extent, I don't, I really don't believe that the program would have worked had that been the mentality. And I've been, I've carried that back into everything that we've ever done here in Baltimore, especially with seawall, right? Whether it's, the first projects that we did here in uh, in the neighborhood of Remington around teacher housing, whether it was the work we did with Joe Jones and the Center for Urban Families over in uh, in West Baltimore, and, and especially as it related to the Lexington Market Project, yeah. you know, like Lexington, in order for it to the transformation to happen, had to be adopted by the entire city of Baltimore. Yeah. Right. Not the municipality, but the people of it. Right. Everyone's got a Lexington market story, especially for those of us who grew up here. Yes. What would it take for you to fall in love with Lexington market again? And we found that by really um, never claiming that the ideas that we've worked on have been ours, which they haven't been, right. We've been really blessed at our company to everything that we've ever done has been a result of deeply listening within the communities that we're blessed to work in. Yeah. Um, and to the end users who are the ones coming to us with, here's a problem that we have. How can real estate be the solution to it? And that's made our jobs re- really easy. But it's that, uh, it's that kind of that, that humility and that uh, ability to not claim ownership of an idea that I think helps that idea grow way past our own ability to muscle something forward. It's great. I, I, I think, you know, one of the things I'm taking from, from hearing is that, you know, when someone is, I'm the face of this idea, then suddenly the person and all of the baggage that may come with the person or whatever, it's now attached to that idea. But when it's flipped, like this is the idea and you're, you're seeking it through maybe listening, social listening through um, the idea being presented, people take ownership of it and they have a skin in the game. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, this is a good idea. Yeah, let's do this. This does make sense. But when someone's the face of it, 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 it turns into how do we feel about this person? more than what the actual idea is. And 
you know, in, in many ways, like for, for what I'm, you know, doing here with this, this podcast, I don't really do too many pictures with me in it. It's like, here's a logo that's of me, but really it's, you know, represent representational of that was a local artist that did it. You know, I'm invested in the artists that are here. I'm invested in the culture that's here and I could just be all over the pictures, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't really work as well. But if it's like, this is the branding that's attached to it. And this is literally what the mission is. You can take that out and people are invested in this idea of showing this city, this community, its people in a more positive light. That's the thing that everybody can get behind, regardless of whoever is is hosting this thing. Yeah, it's a great point, Rob. And there's a, there is a fine line, right? For better or worse, media loves to, to pick up on kind of the one person in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, our job is when there's the opportunity for that train to run away and it really be about one person to make sure that there's a lot of people involved in the story. Yeah. That there are a lot of different diverse vo- voices and thoughts at the, at the table. And I think that's one of the balancing acts. I, I give a lot of entrepreneurs a, a hard time, right? You meet somebody at an event and they're telling you about some really neat idea and company that they've launched and they give you their business card. And on the business card, it'll say president and CEO of, you know, name the company. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, you're the president and CEO of what? Of a one person company? That title <laughs> is going to throw everything off. At some point, you're going to hire mm-hmm. your first employee partner, whatever you, whatever it is. But as a result of how you view yourself within the like growth of that company as the president and CEO, that first person coming in, and the second person, and the fifth person, and the twentieth person, yeah. it's very clear whose idea this was. Yeah, right. It's very clear who makes the decisions and like who calls the shot. The president and the CEO. <laughs> And, and, and so like I give people a hard time because as the organizations grow, titles and, and organizational infrastructure are really important, right? Yes. But at the beginning stages of the growth of an idea, if we don't want to stunt its growth, um, we need to bring it about in a really humble way where, uh, where again, we're not trying to persuade anybody of our importance within that idea because the idea never was ours to begin with. Right. Um, we're yeah. borrowing upon like, the lifetimes of generations, centuries of work of folks and our ancestors that came before us yeah. that have had versions of that idea that in some ways have stuck in some ways haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that like small little title on a, on a business card and the mentality behind it can throw people off. Totally. Totally. Um, and, and I think like when I, when I talk to people about when I do con- consultation for, for podcasting and things of that nature, and I'll talk to people, it's like one of the things you, you want to realize is that there's nothing new out here. It's like there may be a different way of approaching it. Like there's only so many stories, you know, we're going to cover news in this way. It's like, what about you separates it? What about that, that piece about it? What, what about, you know, cause it's nothing new. So if there's, you know, a million ways to look at a particular story or cover a particular story. What are you adding to it? What are you adding to that layer that makes it somehow yours and unique? How are you really attaching yourself and making it yours? Why is it important to you? That's the way to look at it. Because too often people get into this stage where they don't want to start and they don't want to launch something. I don't have a good idea. I don't have anything new. There's nothing new. I don't have a niche. It's like, it's, it's, it's nothing. <laughs> and I don't know. That's, that's kind of, I guess my, my version of that. It's like, like, let me, let me help you out. Let me help you with this. <laughs> um, 
so you, you, you touched on the Pennsylvania Avenue like scenario. So I want to talk about maybe how, how have your experiences and, and that's, that's one that you mentioned, but how have your, how have your experiences in Baltimore shaped you and what are your hopes for Baltimore in the future? <clears throat> so I think the narrative in Baltimore needs to shift from here are all of our problems to here are all of our opportunities. Mm. Right. And as a result of decades and generations of um, our kind of city making poor decisions. Um, We've dug ourselves into our, our hole, but there are so many incredible pockets of energy that exist throughout this city, East Baltimore, West Baltimore, Central Baltimore, North Baltimore, South Baltimore. I'm not seeing a real clear way where we've been able to combine all of those pockets of energy into one ball that is unstoppable, you know? And I I think that we've got this external narrative around Baltimore where, you know, your friends who aren't from here are betting against you. Yeah. Like we're the city of the wire, right? (laughs) Um, We're the city where too many mayors have been corrupt. And um, we, the, all of us who are on the ground doing this really important work kind of see our city for the amazing place that it is. Yeah. Uh, the amazing culture that exists here, the opportunity to launch small businesses and to grow businesses um, and to gather under the Jones Falls Expressway for Sunday markets and, you know, all, the, all these other really inspiring things. But we haven't found a way to kind of combine all of those pockets of energy into into one incredible unstoppable force. And I I think that's our opportunity. I think, I think that's big. I think, um, you know, Baltimore is not particularly huge (laughs) geographically, but you know, I'll have conversations with people and it's like, man, I don't want to go over West. It's like, it's literally 20 minutes away. What are you saying? And it's just like, there's something as small as a, to me, a, a, a 20 minute drive, a, you can walk in some instances that it feels like we're not connected in that way that people don't want to have that exchange and people don't want to have that, that check. So even culturally and how people connect themselves and how people, uh, uh, fellowship, they're inclined to do it. They're not inclined to do it. And I think if that shift were to happen it, it more, it, it would be something that's big. And, and I look for, where's the pride, you know, where's that, that pride in Baltimore, like some of these cities that are out there that, you know, why aren't we as boisterous about it as like in New York and other, in other cities, because we do have a very specific like culture here that is refined. That is really cool. We have great restaurants, art, all of these different things all under the banner of, of Baltimore. And, you know, sometimes people just fall into this, this kind of, blighted mentality that no, we don't have that. But it's like, you see it right there. It's literally right there. Yeah. Detroit's another good example of that. Right. It's, it's hard to kids kid to kind of compete with and talk about the LA's and the New York's and the DC's of the world. But like, where do we stack up against a Pittsburgh? Why is Pittsburgh gaining so much more attention? Why are companies fortune 500 companies moving yeah. to Pittsburgh? Why are fortune 500 companies moving to, to, to Detroit and, and, what is it that Baltimore is, is, is missing with that, with that external narrative? And look, the conversation about, I don't want to go West. It's, we're so 
comfortable in our bubbles, yes, right? Exactly. We're Baltimore is a city of bubbles. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, I equate a bubble to a comfort zone. Yeah. And we, when we get comfortable as Baltimoreans, we don't want to get uncomfortable because it took us a while to get comfortable to begin with. And that is not a good thing. Yeah. Right. Like I really believe that in order to grow as individuals, as human beings, we need to always get out of our comfort zones. Mm-hmm. It's that like five minute drive, 20 minute walk from the east side to the west side. Yeah. Um, or, or wherever we are geographically, um, from the county to the city, uh, to places we haven't been, restaurants we haven't tried. If the longer we stay gets, we stay stuck in our bubbles, uh, the longer it's, the longer it's going to take to, to really make a difference here in Baltimore. And it's going to require all of us to realize that. Yes. And, um, and I think like, that's, that's one of the things, like I like to travel like outside of Baltimore and within Baltimore and cause it gives you just an opportunity to meet people and learn new things. And, it's, and you know, it, it, it comes in some of these podcasts. It's like, I can have anyone on here and have a, you know, good conversation with anyone because it's like, Oh, I spend time over there in South Baltimore. Let's go over there in the North. Let's see what's over here. Oh, you're going to get some uh, Cambodian food. Let's spin it. And that's, and that's what it is. And, um, and I think like for, for people who are maybe outside of the city or even in the city and listening to this, uh, they'll see like, we got that here. Yeah, we do. <laughs> check it out. You should go take a look at it. Um, so, so yeah. I got, I got a couple more questions before I get to these rapid fire ones. And like I said, you know, we'll, um, so what's, what's the first thing is I'm interested in this. Uh, what's the first thing that you do when you wake up in more in the morning and what's the last thing that you do at night? So, I, I, Rob, do you have kids? No. So I have two kids. They're 10 and 12. Yeah. And, and I've always been an early riser. But especially once I had kids, my sweet spot and my ability to have uninterrupted thought is between 4 and 7 a.m. Mm. So I'm up at 4, you know, <laughs> plus or minus a snooze. And, um, and it depends on the day. But, you know, I'm usually at the gym by five. Um, and before then, I am doing some sort of meditation breath work mm-hmm. uh, to kind of set my uh, set, set my intentions for the day. Um, and on a morning when I'm not at the gym, I am digging into emails and things that I've wanted to read and uh stuff that I just don't have time for during the day. Once the kids are up, once other folks are awake and beginning to email and actual work starting to move around and and emails and texts are starting to fly back and forth. But that time between four and 7am is my amazing time. (laughs) I am, I cannot think straight after 9pm. It's like, if you want to have like a proper conversation with me after that time is not going to result in something good. (laughs) No, I, I dig it. Uh, when you have that piece, sometimes I'll, I'll go into the office like super early, try to do the gym move. I'm not I'm not, not there quite at five. I'll, I'll get there at like maybe six or what have you. Try to knock that out. And I feel like that sets my day a bit better. And I uh, got the ebook going or what have you. A lot of Robert Greene stuff. And just in the background, it's like, relate, relate to people, relate. And uh but yeah, I, I think when, especially when these days get long, if it gets late and I start shutting off on a Saturday, 
it's like 9 15 it's just like uh just on just asleep at the couch a movie is going my girl my girlfriend is like are you are you gonna be up i was like no no, I'm not. I'm I'm gonna sleep. I'm I'm gonna fall asleep watching Nightmare Alley or what have you. Um, so, the, so these are the last two I have for you. Uh, so I and, and I think this ties to it. This is a nice segue. Um, so I think you know our work can be pervasive. Uh, it can bleed over to all aspects of our lives. Is is that true for you? And how do you put the laptop down if it is? And how do you avoid those emails? Those those late pervasive emails. Oh, it's such a beautiful question, right? So for me, my work is such an extension of my life. Like I love it, right? And like I can't wait for the email to go come in. I'm so curious about what it is. Yeah. You know, maybe it's unexpected. Maybe it's a surprise. Maybe it's something I've been waiting on for a couple hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks. And so it all fuels this deep curiosity of what's next. What are the forces at play? And but at the same time, I love being a husband, right? There's nothing better than the partnership I have with my wife. And I love being a dad and also a beautiful extension of, of my life. And I love being a friend. And I have just, I've always been, been blessed to find that good balance between the two. Um, again, I think that kind of four to seven a.m. time allows me to, to get a lot done, uh, that, uh, that, that otherwise might get, might get in the way. And if I need to stay up a little bit later, even though I'm not thinking that clearly, I will. Um, and, and I feel like I'm that both my wife and kids feel like I'm giving them every, everything I have as well. So I, I feel really balanced right now. It's, it's a, it's a good thing in the, in the beginning, uh, I, I, I needed reminders of that, but, yeah. uh, but, but today I do feel really balanced. It's great. Balance is, you know, I had this philosophy of stealing time, stacking things where I can. It's like if I'm unable to read books uh, the way that I would want to, all right, let's maybe change the way I look at it. Instead of reading, it's consuming it. It's like, so I might just listen to an ebook on on loop or what have you and really try to process and get the things I'm supposed to get out of it. And I find that my pretension is a bit better in that regard. And I might do that with myself working out. And it's like, oh, I can do both of these things that normally require me to try to block off this time and it feels less efficient. And then I get frustrated and don't, you know, continue that path. But this notion of being able to stack uh, high focus and low focus activities, I feel a bit more productive in that way. And definitely having that time where it's like, it might be late for me more than early in the morning where I'm able to maybe get like seven to nine, I might be able to knock out some things or gaps between podcasts sometimes. Cause I know I have to be on and it's like, I'm already prepped. I'm already good to go. I got two hours before this next one, let's get to work. And it, it, it feels good. And sometimes it's, um, you know, maybe linking up with the friends. One of that's one of the things that I've really started focusing on recently. I call them man meals, but I'll get up with my 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 colleagues that uh, do creative stuff and make it a make it a really important goal to spend time because you know over the last couple of years, just people are moving in different directions, and those connections that you had they're not as strong and they're hanging on by a thread at times. So making an effort to consistently meet. It's like, look, we're going to get lunch. We're going to do something. And that's just, just what it is. And I find that that's been effective and people don't always know how to say it, but it's been effective and been really helpful for the, for my, for my folks and for myself. That's a beautiful practice. I might have to borrow that man meals. <laughs> yes. Man meals. 
So, and, and thank you. Uh, so this is the last one. And in the, um, and, and, and this is just, uh, one of the things I saw that you've been recently like working on and, and talking a lot about what inspired you to start writing uh, larger than yourself. And what are some of the experiences you, you chose to highlight? Yeah. So I just released my first book, uh, and it's called larger than yourself. And it explores how we can grow small ideas into powerful, impactful movements. And I was inspired to write it because from all of the work I've done, whether it's peace players or the stuff with Seawall back here in Baltimore, I've always had the opportunity to, to speak publicly, right? Sure. I get invited to give speeches and, and I would talk about the process of growing each one of the ideas throughout my speeches. And afterwards people would come up to me and they would ask me about that process and the principles that I had talked about around growing an idea as if I was speaking a different language, but in a good way, right? Yeah. As if the way that I was doing it was different enough uh, that it resonated and there was curiosity behind it. So I started to take notes on their questions and my answers to their questions. And those notes became paragraphs and the paragraphs became chapters. And then before you knew it, uh, I, look, I think we all have a book within us. Uh, yeah. It's just whether we're going to uh, press forward and, and bring it to life. And, um, you know, before you knew it, there was a, like a full manuscript there. And I was, I knew that, that I wanted it to become a book that, that, that others would get to read, that I would yeah. be able to kind of share these life lessons. And it's really interesting The my first pass at the manuscript, which I thought was amazing. Uh, uh, I shared it with a bunch of friends, but one of them was Wes Moore, who ended up writing the foreword for the book. And, yeah. and Wes is, a, is a, a great friend and running for governor today and has done so many amazing things throughout his life. And he was the only one who I think gave me really honest feedback. And he was like, look, um, the way that this is written will never work for two reasons. One is stop trying to tell the reader what it is that you want them to know. Let them figure that out for themselves. Mm. Stop preaching, right? And deliver the book and the messages through a series of life lessons, real stories, and aha teachable moments. Yeah. We, none of us want to get lectured to. No, and and he, he was so right. So basically the book is 21 chapters where you ride kind of shotgun with me <laughs> through growing up and like some struggles that I had and kind of questions that grew within me and to the creation of the peace players program all over the world to ending up back in, in Baltimore unexpectedly and into the early stages of the growth of seawall. Yeah. But every, ch every chapter is a, a story. Right. Uh, yeah. In a way that's meant to be really gripping. Um, and the reader will take away from each one of those chapters what's important to them, what resonates to them in the moment, what it is that they feel like they're missing within their their heart and soul. So I really appreciated that advice from Wes. And the other thing he said was that I needed to be really vulnerable in the writing of it. Yeah. Um, if I came off as everything always works out and there's never any mistakes or never any failures, people aren't going to resonate with that. Right. And so as I went back and wrote, wrote the book a second time, it was really with that, those two things in mind to, to, to deliver the message through aha teachable moments through fun stories and, uh, and, and allow myself to be vulnerable. And, and that was a deep dive for me. I'm a, a, pr a pretty, uh, I mean, I, I, I tend to kind of stick to myself and while I love people, yeah. um, I don't, I don't like sharing a lot about myself. And that was a, that was a neat opportunity to understand the life lessons I had, um, 
and 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 how to share them and and, and do it in a way that that uh, that really felt true and authentic. So and really grateful for Wes's feedback and, and and pushback on that, and and really excited about the book. You know, it's been out for a few months now, and um, it's been fun to bump into people who have uh, read it and understand what it, what it has meant to them. That's great, and, and, and thank you, and congratulations. Thank you. All right. So, as I said before, all of the goodwill that I've created, I think, I think, I think we're connecting here. I think we're boys here. Everything that I've connected and, and, and established here, I'm going to piss it all away. Uh, it is time for some rapid fire questions. I got four of them for you. Um, they're they're not bad questions. Um, all right. What what's what uh, popular entrepreneurial advice do you just disagree with? I, jeez, I guess the one that comes to mind is that everything is fundable. Hmm. That, uh, you know, no matter what project you, you have and that you're working on, that you'll get funding for it. Right. And I know that access to capital is always one of the, like the, the largest barriers, but, um, while I believe in so much of that, I think there's a fine line between how we bring that story and that message and that idea to life. A lot of the things that we've talked about. Sure. Um, and I think that if we, if we go about it the wrong way, then we won't have access to the funding. Fair. Dig it. Uh, so we like what we like, you know, we all into what we're into. What are you particularly snobbish about? And, and, and don't get, don't get caught on a word, but what are you particularly snobbish about? And what are you more down to earth about? Like, for instance, I'm very picky about like certain restaurants. Like, look, man, you're not doing your shrimp and grits right. I don't see any swine in there. What are you doing? Uh, but also, I'm kind of down to earth. Like, ah, I don't care. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's just get a beer at this bar or what have you. What are you particularly snobbish about? Like, and, and, and what are you particularly down to earth about? Oh, I feel like I'm a, a pretty easy guy when it comes to you can drop me in a forest with, uh, with nothing. Uh, you can drop me on a mountain. You can leave me in an ocean. Um, you can put me in a boardroom, put me in front of a group of students. And like, I will pretty much roll with, with just about anything and, and, and really, really love it. Um, I am really picky about somebody giving me their word, um, and sticking to it. You know, I think that, and I tell my kids that I don't preach to them about a lot, but, uh, we really only have one thing and, and that's our credibility and authenticity and our word. Yeah. And once we start to lose that. So again, I'm really easy going until I lose that sense of trust. Yeah. Um, and then at that point, uh, and, and you know what I've learned to do in my, and as I'm from my old age, as I've gotten older is, is not harbor resentment. Uh, and turn somebody off, turn, turn somebody away and just unplug them from my life yeah. and really be able to go to them and sit with them and say, that didn't feel right. You know? Um, and then this is the reason why, and, and maybe at the end of it, uh, it still doesn't feel right. And, and that's the end of the relationship. But I, I really believe in, in being able to share with people, especially people close to us, how we feel. That's big. That's big. I, I I'm glad I, don't have kids at this point because that advice you give, I feel like I would give a similar piece of advice, but it would be a Scarface quote. Like all I have is my word and my balls. And that's just what you're getting. <laughs> this is going to be a version of that, I feel. Um, so last two, uh, for, for you, what would you say the 
three or name three um, traits of a successful successful entrepreneur, and what has been the hardest for you to master of those three? Compassion, right? You have to be really compassionate. Um, you have to have the ability to never give up and block the words can't and no from your vocabulary because you're going to get those words every single day in everything that you do. Um, uh, and the third one is kind of like vision leadership. You know, I think that when we bring ideas to life in really inclusive ways, sharing ownership and authorship, rarely do we have to step up and make a very critical, hard decision because the collective group is already moving the idea forward in the right direction. But I want to be very clear that there are times where uh, someone stepping up and, and making the hard decision are, are critical. Yeah. Um, and understanding the, 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 the need and the time to do that are, are really important. Rob, what was the second half of that question? Um, what, what of those was the hardest for you to master? The, the leadership side, the leadership one. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and I say like, that's been some of my like biggest failures is being too afraid to step up at a time where I really needed to. Um, and, and then that has really negatively impacted a project or the growth of an idea or something. Um, and, uh, I think those, the first two just came like come quite naturally. I'm just a really compassionate, uh, person. Um, and I will never, ever give up on anything. But that that ability to kind of step up in in, in tricky times yeah. uh, is something that I'm always working on. Uh, Someone in that regard. <laughs> this this was a podcast network at one point, so definitely it's just like ah, um, gotta be the leader here. How do we do this one? <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I relate. Um, so this is the last one, and this is actually my, probably my favorite question of the entire day. In your experience, what is the artist pronunciation of your name? <laughs> the, the oddest? Yes, the oddest. It's like, uh, this is look. a weird version of my name. <laughs> so look, uh, you know, my name is spelled T-H-I-B-A-U-L-T. I'd say the oddest pronunciation of it is the real way, which is Tebow. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, the most simple pronunciation of it would be Thibault. Right. Make, <laughs> yeah. So I would kind of flip it, but my mom's from France and in, in France, they'll put eight letters in a word and only pronounce like three of them. That's great. And in, in my case, uh, the, the three letters that, that the sounds that would come out of the way that you spell my name yeah. would be Tebow. Yeah. Um, but here in America, that is not how people pronounce it. And I've gotten called everything. But it's been, it's something I'm still working on today is getting over it and just letting it roll and flow. It's great. I at at one point at uh in college um for a semester my name was Roberts. It was an S at the end, and I was like, "Look, man, can we can we not? I'm, I know I'm a big person. Don't add, don't make me plural. Like, can we do something different?" Uh, <laughs> so that's that's all the questions that I have for you today, Tebow. And um, I, I thank you for being on this podcast. And I want to invite and encourage you to um you know telephone folks where to check you out, your happenings, and um anything that you want to really plug. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Awesome conversation. Thanks again for the platform that you've created and, and the stories. I mean, really just like trying to shine that beautiful light on Baltimore. You know, you see it every day and, and, and so do I. And so, so do so many of us. And 
this platform is critical and we need more folks like you out telling the stories of the, of the good work. Um, you, and you can find me uh, at, uh, at tbomannequin.com. Um, and then you can also find me on uh, LinkedIn and uh, Instagram at tbomannequin uh, for, for those, for those platforms. And those are, those are probably the best places to get. So there you have it, folks. Um, I want to again thank Tebow Mannequin for coming on to the podcast. And I'm saying there is community in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. Mm-hmm.